There we go. No, not yet. <clears throat> there it is. Okay. Hang Again? on. I don't know. Let me check with you. Assuming they can say. Well, we'll see. He's okay. He says we're live. We are live. Okay. Sade, righteous, journey, chase, hunt, trail. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. Statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promise, promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting. Your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands I delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I might live. Good, good stuff. Little, little late on the streaming again. There's something that's causing it to not come up. So, uh... Let's see here. We got uh, we'll read this day in Christian history and a couple of prayer requests, and then we'll get started. Let's see a prayer request. Um, Darlene, who is back from North Carolina, her brother Steve is going to be in surgery for a Parkinson's brain and that didn't work. It worked for a while, and then it stopped, and he he cannot live without it. It's uncontrollable shaking. So that'll be on November seventeenth, which is in two days. And then Rick is supposed to have his heart surgery, which he had to have move back three times, finally next Tuesday, if his numbers work out all right. And if they don't, then uh, he said he's just going to come to Florida. You know, he's tired of waiting around, and he wants to be down here in the, at Bible class, I'm sure. But uh, uh, Today's the 12th, not the 15th. No, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. So it's next Tuesday. That's right. Um, and uh, then Burke pulled a muscle just before class so he won't be here i did ask him to come in and vacuum anyway and he said he wouldn't um i'm kidding of course and uh uh then jody uh emailed just before we got about 40 minutes ago and said she can't make it to class because she didn't budget her time properly so she gets whipped with a wet noodle when i see her next but uh yeah there you go okay we're going to go ahead and uh read this day in history and have a prayer and then we'll get started let's see today is the 12th of november and i know that because yesterday was the 11th of november so that there we go 12 november when god prompts you to pray for someone you'd best take heed on a cool morning in a village near bedford england in the <laughs> excuse me 1870s a widow named miss simmons went to the door of her little cottage to watch the hounds run by followed by the huntsman she always enjoyed waving to the children as they rode by on their ponies. On this particular morning, she felt herself strangely drawn to the children of Captain Polhill Turner, a family who often rode in the hunt. As the clatter of hooves faded away, Miss Simmons was filled with the conviction that Jesus wanted her to pray for these children, and so she did, faithfully praying for them daily. Captain Polhill Turner, a wealthy member of Parliament, lived in a large country house with his six children, Nanny Reedshaw cared for the children, and life proceeded in a well-planned and orderly fashion. Even the future careers of the three sons were already planned. The oldest would inherit the family estate, the second would join the English cavalry, and the youngest, Arthur, would enter the ministry. Growing up, Arthur's religious ideas were hazy. What little he knew came from Nanny Reedshaw telling the children Bible stories and saying that Jesus was her friend. Two critical events 
disturbed the well-ordered life of young Arthur Paul Hill Turner. The first was when his oldest sister, Alice, suddenly announced that she was going to give up hunting and parties and serve Jesus. She had attended a mission service in Bedford where she had trusted Christ as her savior. Unaware that Miss Simmons and Nanny Reedshaw had been praying for her all those years, Arthur found her subsequent efforts to evangelize him to be a nuisance. The second event was a greater shock. In Arthur's last year of high school, his father died. As Arthur entered Cambridge University the following year, her fa his father's death continued to weigh on him. During his second year at Cambridge, Arthur was amused to read placards advertising the coming of an American evangelist, D.L. Moody, and his song leader, Ira Sankey, to Cambridge. To him, it was a joke that two uneducated Americans would come to Cambridge. The first meeting was on a Sunday, and Arthur Polhill Turner went out of curiosity. Although many of the students attending the meeting were rowdy, Arthur tried to listen to Moody's message in spite of the mayhem. Arthur continued to go back every night. By Thursday, the mood had changed, and at the end of the service, many prominent students made their way to the inquiry room. That night, Moody preached on the prodigal son, and Arthur realized the emptiness of his life. But back in his room, Arthur was afraid of what it might mean to give himself wholeheartedly to Jesus. Now, this is somebody who's supposed to be in the ministry, Dad's choice. So he returned to the meetings on Friday and Saturday, knowing he must trust Christ, but afraid to do so. On Sunday, November 12, 1882, a week after the first service, Arthur was back once again. In a sermon, Moody quoted Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Suddenly, Arthur understood. The words continued to ring in Arthur's ears as he joined in singing from the heart, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. At the close of the service, Moody asked everyone who had received blessing during the week to stand as a token of their faith. Over 200 stood, and one of them was Arthur Polhill Turner. God led him to China, where he served as a missionary for the rest of his life. And they asked, do you ever find that you just can't get someone out of your mind? Perhaps God is prompting you to pray for that person. The two women in this story who prayed were an important part of God's plan. When you are praying and God brings someone's name to mind, rejoice that you too have been given a divine prayer assignment. And James 5.16, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. Good stuff. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and uh, pray for those that uh, were mentioned and others that uh, I failed to write down over the busyness of the past couple days with the uh, storm and the damage we've had, but uh, you know who they are, each and every person that has something wrong with their heart or their mind or their body or their finances or uh, whatever it is, and people may have been affected by the storm that uh, may have difficulties or troubles. I know somebody emailed me from North Carolina today and she had a leaking roof. So Lord, just be attentive to these things for these people's sake and uh, uh, whatever you determine is best, I know that they will appreciate that, even if it means going through more trials and more troubles. They will, at the end, turn around and see your hand in it, even through the trials. And uh, so uh, we thank you for the chance to ask these things. We also pray for this class that things would be proper. And if there's something that is said that is incorrect, please uh, bring it to mind so that we can uh, correct whatever doctrine is in is not in accord with your will. 
And we pray these things that you will be glorified in us. And we certainly pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We are in Galatians chapter 4, finally. Oh, we've been in Galatians 4 for about a month. We're in verse 418. Yes. 17 is the beginning of the paragraphs, and we'll go back to that. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. 18. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is to be so always and not just when I am with you. Okay, it's almost identical. I'm present with you instead of with you, but there you go. Very close. Let's see here. Uh, he already read it, so I don't have to reread it. In the previous verse, it was noted that the Judaizers zealously hoarded the Galatians, but it was not for a good purpose. Rather, their intent was to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Hello, Miss Garrett. How are you tonight? Now, Paul acknowledges that zeal in a good thing is always good. There's an emphasis on always in the Greek. It does not want to diminish what is good while correcting what is bad. It should be noted that zealous, the word zealous here in the Greek is in the passive voice. This is then speaking of zealousness towards the Galatians, not their own zeal. In other words, if someone is zealous for them in a good way, unlike the Judaizers, then that is always good. However, when someone is zealous for them as the Judaizers were, it's not a good thing. And as uh, it, because it's in the passive voice, it means that they are zealous for them, but they have an active zealousness for themselves. If you understand what, uh, in other words, when you pour a drink, you're actively pouring the drink, but the cup is passively receiving it. Well, they want these people converted to them. But I got something before you uh, leave today. I have something for you over here. But that's the second Miss Garrett to show up in less than one minute. <sighs> okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, so these uh, Judaizers had come in. They're trying to uh, turn the people away from Paul, specifically towards themselves. And they're obviously looking for all kinds of things. They're probably looking for their own little group of people that they can control. They're looking to get them back under the law of Moses to make them look more pious and so on. All of these things are on their minds. And uh, uh, this is what Paul is writing about. It's always good. To, it's good to be zealous for a thing, but only if it's the right thing and if the person has the right attitude towards it. As an example, if someone is zealous to convert someone who believes in the deity of Christ into a person that believes Christ is merely a created being, then their zeal is bad. So when you get the knock at the door from the Jehovah's Witnesses, you want to make sure you don't entertain them. As it says, uh, I think it's 2 John, let me take you there. Um, uh, just so you know why I say this, this will take just a second. I could quote it to you, but I don't want to misquote it to you. So I think it's um, uh, 2 John, is it? Uh, uh, taking that strangers with you. It might be 3 John then. Let's see here. Um, suffering, taking that. Where are we here, grumblers? Oh, I'm in Jude. Okay, so I got 2 John here and 3 John here. Okay, um, let's see here. Okay, here it is. Yeah, 2 John. I was right, but I was looking at 3 John because it's... Okay, 2 John uh, 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, meaning that Jesus Christ is God, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And this is one of the things that we do in the projects, because the Jehovah's Witnesses are down there, we're down there, and if we see them, 
If we go greeting them and saying, hey, how you doing there, brother? We are acknowledging that what they're doing is proper. It would be like praying with somebody who's not of the faith. You're acknowledging their God, even though, because by praying with them, you're saying that what they're doing is acceptable. You're not to pray with people uh, that are of other religions. Somebody actually emailed me about that this week, and they said, well, what about Jews? And I said, they do not believe in Jesus Christ. They are not going through the one mediator between God and man, and I would not pray with them. You know, I've gone to a synagogue to see what goes on there, but I'm not going to pray with them. So that's all there is to it, because we represent Jesus Christ, and we cannot mix the holy with the profane. Um, uh, The same thing is true with somebody coming to your house and knocking on the door and saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And you say, well, what Jesus? Is he the divine son of God? And if they say no, then you can either slam the door in their face or you can uh, say, I'll talk to you outside. You're not welcome into my house and you're going to hear the true gospel. And I wouldn't go any further than that with them because, uh, you know, when it says don't greet them, you're not actually greeting them. You're trying to convert them. So I would have no problem with that. But um, you have to be well-schooled, though. I'll say that right if you are going to talk with the Mormons or if you're going to talk with the Jehovah's Witnesses, you need to know what you're talking about because they are well trained. They may not, uh, not all of them, of course. I mean, you get people in any church that don't know anything and people that, but the ones that knock on the doors have been well trained in what they are told to say. And they know the verses to go to, which most people that will open the door have no idea what verses they're going to go to. They don't pay attention and uh, they probably don't go to Bible class and they uh, don't pay attention on Sunday they sleep instead and uh, you know I'm being facetious here but you've got to be careful when you address these people because they will put you in a box and you won't have an answer to them unless you know what they are going to present so brush up on what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach go to their website read up on what they teach and then when one of them comes and knocks on the door you will be ready for them otherwise I wouldn't even talk with them because you're only going to make yourself look you know they're gonna leave and say we really showed him something so anyway, um, yeah, read that again. Uh, Christ into a person who believes that Christ is merely a created being, then their zeal is bad. However, if someone is zealous to have their students properly handle the doctrines of the Bible and to grow into sound Christian maturity, then their zeal is good. Paul acknowledges that even if it wasn't him, in such a case, it would still be good. This is indicated by the words, and not only when I am present with you. He doesn't care who teaches them as long as they're teaching them properly. And Paul goes so far, I don't remember the verse offhand, but, um, you know, Paul says some people preach Christ out of, you know, selfish means, and some people preach Christ out of this way and that way. And he says, I don't care. As long as Christ is proclaimed, that is what matters to me. And here he obviously qualifies it by saying as long as the doctrine is correct. But he went right from chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, if they are proclaiming a false gospel, that's anathema. And he says they are to be treated as anathema. So be careful with these things. But at the same time, you know, if you know how to properly handle the Bible and the doctrines, the basic theology of the Bible, then talk to them. Let them know that you disagree with them, that they are heretics and that they need to understand that there is only one path to heaven. And that is through the divine son of God, Jesus Christ. So, okay, um, let's see here. If someone is zealous to have their students, I read that. Uh, Paul, no, okay, I read that too. He is not jealously guarding the Galatians only for himself. Instead, he is jealously guarding them for the sake of the truth. Any t- true teacher will receive his, appro- his approval. The reason he is saying this to them is to show that he isn't just jealous because they have, speaking of the Judaizers, 
because they have found a new uh, group of people to follow, but because the group they have chosen to follow are a bunch of heretics. As a father to his children, he is heartbroken over this, okay? And, you know, he's sincere. When somebody else came along and taught them, I don't care if it was, uh, you know, Apollos or Epaphras or whatever, he never complained about that, as long as they were proclaiming the correct gospel. But these people come in here and start saying, you need to be back under the law of Moses. And, you know, just go back and read, uh, what is it, Galatians uh, 15. And I'm sorry, Acts chapter 15. And that'll show you. This is where this all, let's go there. We'll do that today. You can see this is what's on Paul's mind is what happened in the book of Acts. And let me put this over here. That moved. Conflict over circumcision. Yeah, that's it, this is exactly what Paul is referring to, and it's just summed up in the book of Acts. Now, somebody emailed me about the book of Acts today, and I have to say this from time to time. He had some questions about something I said, I think, during the last Bible class, and I could be wrong. But um, the one thing that you need to remember about the book of Acts is, if you haven't attended this class before, you may not have heard this, but the book of Acts is a descriptive document. It describes what happened. It is not prescriptive. The book of Acts does not prescribe anything out of about five verses. Uh, at the beginning, Jesus gives a couple of verses that are prescriptive, right in Acts chapter 1, and you'll come to a couple of verses that are prescriptive in Acts, which are in chapter 15, but then those are later qualified by Paul. He later explains or amends what is said there. They gave a edict in the early church in Acts chapter 15, and that was just so that things would be smoothed over between the Jews and the Gentiles. But at the same time, Paul later writes and says that this is acceptable, this is acceptable, and he tells you why. We need the epistles to get our doctrine, not the book of Acts. If you take your doctrine from the book of Acts, and I, I told this guy this, and I say it every time somebody emails me, or even if I make a post on Facebook, probably 99.999732% of all bad doctrine in the church comes from using the book of Acts wrong. The Church of Christ uses it wrong, and they've gone off on a, a bad tangent. Uh, charismatics use it wrong. They use it in a, de or, I'm sorry, a prescriptive manner. It is never to be used that way. It is a historical document which tells us how the early church was shaped and how it was founded. But if you use that for doctrine, you are it, it's not that you might have bad doctrine, you are going to have bad doctrine. So remember that with the book of Acts, it is a descriptive account to tell us how things came about. And it's got a lot of other patterns in there that show us why the Jews, uh, why the gospel moved from the Jews to the Gentiles. and why we hold to the message of Paul in the New Testament church along with Peter and why the uh, change was made from Jerusalem to Rome, from the Jew to the Gentile. And all of these things are seen in the book of Acts. If you understand the structure of it and the patterns that Luke lays down, you'll really benefit from a study of the book of Acts. But don't use the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner. That's the number one thing you don't want to do. Okay, we're going to read this chapter 15 just so we understand what Paul is talking about. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you were circumcised, which is exactly what Paul is addressing in all six chapters of the book of Galatians. Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay? Um, it, it's so obvious on the surface. It's so obvious that it's hard to understand how people could make this error and say, oh, then I need to uh, be circumcised after they've already received Jesus. Paul has addressed it already. He's probably going to talk about it more. But he said, you know, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law 
or did you receive it by faith? And the answer is by faith. So why would you need to add in the law after you have received the spirit, which is the deposit, which is the guarantee that you're gonna to go to heaven? Why would you do this? So all you're doing is you're harming your walk with Jesus and you are damaging the gospel message by that. That's all you're doing, okay? Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now remember, it just said that Paul and Barnabas defended the faith and the truth of the gospel, right? Paul and Barnabas. What does it say earlier in the book of Galatians? We were just there. It says that even Barnabas was led astray by Peter. Where is that? Let me see if I can find it. I know it's here. It is. It's in uh, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And when James, Cephas, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been... Oh, that's not the one I want. It said Barnabas there. Um, it says somewhere... Oh, um, Barnabas with me, took Barnabas. Okay, it says it right there. The Barnabas was also led astray by... Um, now Peter had withstood him. Uh, okay, I know it says this. I know it does. I remember uh, the right, uh, they desired only... What's that? I do remember. Yeah, even, it might be in chapter 1. Let me go back here. But anyway, Barnabas was led astray by uh, what had happened as well. I know I... Yeah, right here. It's, um, it's uh, chapter 1, verse... Um, it's after 11, when Peter came to Antioch. Okay. Towards the end of that paragraph. Even Barnabas was led astray. Chapter 1 and 13. verse 11. Okay. Go to 13 is where it's Okay. Said. All right. I'm not seeing the name of Barnabas there. In, in, it's in Galatians. Two. Two. Oh, 2. Sorry, See, there. Two. Okay. Oh, you're right. Thank All you. right. Oh, okay. There it is. Yeah. I, I'm looking in chapter 1. and I, yeah, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, yeah, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas, now this is Barnabas, who was going down with Peter, had been defending the gospel. But because he got, you know, starstruck by Peter and all these people that came, and he's worried now, even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So just because you are grounded in Christ. And I'm not accusing anybody. I'm not saying this to anybody online. I'm not saying it to anybody in here. I'm saying it as much to me as to anybody else. Just because you are grounded in Christ, it does not mean that you cannot falter in your sure. walk. You get around people and they're an influence to you and all of a sudden you might start doing something that you would not do normally. And you have to remember that you are accountable only to Christ, to nobody else. So, as I said, I'm just as susceptible to this as anybody else. You get around people, you get around crowds, and you tend to not want to be the guy that looks stupid. But for the sake of the gospel, you can look stupid all day long, as long as you're holding to the truth of the gospel. Okay, so with that understood, and thank you for finding that. Um, uh, so, being sent on their way, this is Paul and Barnabas. By the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. <clears throat> and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, which Paul was a Pharisee before, who believed, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. 
This is what Paul is going to argue against all the way through the book of Galatians, even to the last chapter, against this. And why? Because circumcision is mandated in the law of Moses. And he even made a point. Circumcision actually, Jesus made the point, that circumcision actually comes from Abraham. That's irrelevant to the argument because it is also mandated in the law of Moses. Okay, it is true it came from Abraham. It is true that the fathers had circumcision, but under the law of Moses, it is a command. It is a precept, an ordinance, a statute, whatever. It is in there in the law of Moses. And so that is what matters, is that it is something that the law demanded. And Paul says that if you do that, Christ means nothing to you. We're not there yet in Galatians, but we will get to that. So it's uh, they these Pharisees said it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. This is Peter, who was the one that had faltered in Galatia, and he had even led Barnabas astray. Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was in Acts chapter 10, okay? Peter is the one that spoke to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Peter is the one that was there to see that the people had received the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans in Acts chapter, anybody? Anybody? Chapter 8. Okay, very good. And then after that, uh, in Acts chapter 10, he was told to go up to the house of Cornelius, and who was of the Italian regiment, meaning he was a Gentile from Italy. Okay, and he was to hear the gospel, and all he did was open his mouth and start speaking, and the Holy Spirit came down on the people that believed. Okay, so, you know, good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Whatever they had for breakfast that morning, and it certainly wasn't under the dietary laws of Moses, and under the law of Moses, if you had touched something unclean or eaten something unclean or whatever, you were unclean until evening. Remember that? We heard that 400 times in the book of Leviticus. If a person does this, he's unclean until evening. If a person does this, he's unclean until evening. If a person does this or this or this, Thousands of things, maybe not thousands, but I'm a, I'm a hyperbolist. Yeah, a lot of times, and it would say unclean until evening, all right? And they usually had to do something along with that, like wash their body or this or that. There was something they needed to do along with that. So the fact that these people in Acts chapter 15 that Peter is describing had had breakfast, which was not according to the law of Moses, they're sitting there listening to Peter. They believe the message, and without anybody doing anything, just simply hearing and believing, the Holy Spirit comes down on them. Belly's full of pork, okay? It makes no difference. It is totally irrelevant what you eat. Totally irrelevant. To say otherwise is to diminish the work of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law of Moses, okay? So people need to get that one straight right now. Dietary laws are out. All of the law of Moses is out. It is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside in Christ. Okay? So, he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you, speaking to these people, they're telling them to observe the law of Moses, why do you test God by putting a yoke 
on the neck of the other disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. He calls the law of Moses a yoke, just as Paul does. It is a yoke. A yoke is something that's heavy, it's a burden, and that it doesn't give you any freedom. You are directed by the yoke. You don't direct the yoke, okay? And so they call it a yoke, and they say that which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. The point of the books from Joshua all the way until Malachi, not the entire point. This is a major point. A major point of every single book that is in the Old Testament from Joshua to Malachi is to show that they could not fulfill the law. Not one person in all of that time was able to fulfill the law. Not one. Every single one of them is dead. The man who does the things of the law, Leviticus 18.5, will live by them. Not one person lived, and therefore not one person was able to bear the yoke of the law. Kings led entire nations astray, and then they would come back to the Lord under a good king who still messed up. I mean, I was listening to the, the Bible in my car today, and they were talking about Hezekiah. Hezekiah messed up, okay? He wasn't a perfect king. He messed up in certain ways, and then I just was listening to his son Manasseh as I was arriving here today and the appalling things he did. But it, that's the lesson of the law, is that nobody can do these things. It's impossible to do them. And why anybody would want to put that yoke back on somebody and say, you need to do these things is beyond comprehension. And it is appalling. So he calls it a yoke. Neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Old Testament bears that out perfectly. But we believe that through the grace, grace is something you cannot earn. I don't care how inexpensive it is and how valuable the commodity is, if it's worth $50 billion and you say, I'd like a penny for this, it is not grace. Does everybody understood that? understand that? It's a very good deal maybe, but it is not grace. Grace is having nothing added to something. It is a, it is a gift without any stipulations at all. And faith is not a work. Please understand that because we got these uh, cults out there that want to say that even faith is a work. Okay, what is it? Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And they say that is a work. You don't have to confess him with your mouth. I didn't write the Bible, and I am not going to stand in front of Jesus someday and say, I told people that they don't have to confess the Lord Jesus. It is an affirmation of the faith that they had in their heart. And if they don't do it, then they are not saved. That's what the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or they may be saved because they believed with their heart, but they have not obeyed the word that is given. So it's not a work. If you want to understand that verse, go back and watch the Roman uh, uh, commentary on Romans 10, 9, and 10, or go to the Superior Word website and just read it. Then you'll understand how it is not anything other than an affirmation, and you need to do it, okay? Um, anyway, um, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace is unmerited favor. Completely and wholeheartedly, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, all Gentile churches, the Philippians, all Gentiles are saved in the exact same way as the Jews are. You are saved by grace through faith and nothing else. No observance of the law. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, 
listen to me. This is James. He's the first, we would call him just to, as a snub to the Catholic Church, he would be the first pope. Okay, it's not Peter, but he wasn't a pope. He was just the leader of the church at the beginning. Okay, and it's just, it's, I won't get into Catholicism right now. We won't do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, they listened to them, and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That was Peter speaking about Cornelius. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. After this is speaking of the Gentile-led church age. Everybody got that? After this, and some versions do not say after this. I understand that. But after the times of the Gentile-led church age, then the tabernacle of David will be built again. It means that Christ will sit in Jerusalem ruling out of Israel. Okay, that'll happen for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign of Christ. We're not going to worry about that right now. But I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things. These are prescriptive verses right here. Everything we've read so far up until this point, up until verse um, 19, it's all descriptive. It prescribes nothing. It's just a historical account of what happened. Now in verse 19, we get something that is prescribed. But just because it is prescribed does not mean that it is not amended later by Paul, okay? So in to fully understand what is said here, you need to read the rest of Paul's epistles and to go from there, okay? But as an accommodation to the Jews, not offending them, they came up with this set of prescriptions for the early church, okay? Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, Verse 20, but we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. Paul discusses that in detail in Galatians chapter 8 and 10, I believe. If you want to know that, go back and watch. We've already recorded those. But he, in detail, he talks about that. He amends what is said there. Okay, but um, polluted from idols, from sexual immorality, which is never amended in any way, shape, or form. There is no amending of sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, guess what? Last page of the Bible. Let's go to the very last page of the Bible before we finish up. It says here, um, where is it? Dum, 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 dum. Uh, I know it's right here. Uh, filthy, who is righteous. Okay, here it is, verse 14. Blessed are those who do the commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. It's also in chapter 21 of Revelation, the sexually immoral. So uh, there is an intolerance for sexual immorality within the church. There is to be an intolerance for sexual immorality within the church. Now, this does not mean if you are saved, you are saved. This does not mean that if you fall, if you do something sexually immoral, you lose your salvation or that you were never saved or any of that kind of stuff. Once you are saved, you are no longer under law. You are under grace. You will never lose that and you cannot be imputed sin again. If you're not imputed sin, then you cannot die again. You are forever saved the moment that you are saved, okay? But you are the one that will have to face the consequences for your sexual immorality, 
Okay, and that is explicitly said where? It's in 1 Corinthians what chapter? Shortest chapter, I think, in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're going to go there. Now you've seen the last page of the Bible. Before we finish in Acts, I'm going to take you to, uh, and this is all relevant to Galatians. All of this is relevant, so I have no problem diverting today to do this. Okay, we're, because I made a statement about being saved eternally, even if you're in sexual immorality. Here it is, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And he's speaking to saved believers. Okay, so everybody see, sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, and Jesus on the last page of the Bible says the sexually immoral are outside, along with the dogs and the murderers. But it says, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Gentiles were homosexuals. Gentiles were, they would, they would do every perverted thing that you can think of because they had no light. They had no revelation from God, and they just did whatever. But this is so bad that Paul says this is worse than anything that the Gentiles do. And he says that a man has his father's wife. He's appalled by this. And why? Because he knows the story of Reuben, his ancestor, who slept with Jacob, his father. He says this is something that's not even named among the Gentiles. Okay? Reuben lost the right to the firstborn because of what he did. Okay? So it says, and you are puffed up. And if not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Get him out of the church. For indeed, as I indeed, as present in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his, oh, here it is, eternal salvation, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Get him out of the congregation because all he's going to do is infect the, the congregation and then people that aren't yet saved will never come to a right knowledge of the gospel. They will never be saved because of what's going on in your church. Get him out of here. He will be saved, but he will suffer the consequences of what he's doing. Hence, eternal salvation. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you allow it in the church with one person, the whole church will think it's okay, and pretty soon there's a pervert party going on in the church, and that's not what is acceptable, okay? you got to get rid of the person that's doing this. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Guess what? Feast of, uh, uh, what is it, Passover, um, uh, right after Passover is uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Fulfilled right there, okay? He's saying that we are unleavened. In Christ, we are unleavened, okay? Feast fulfilled. And then he says, he backs up and he says, for Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Feast fulfilled. That's the second feast in two verses. You've got two fulfillments, or is it one? One verse. One verse, two feasts fulfilled. He was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven. He's not speaking of keeping the Passover. He's speaking of keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Okay. Let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the leavened bread, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. If you have a friend that does these things and he doesn't claim to be a Christian, you have every right to hang around with your friend. That is what Paul is saying. You have every right to do so. If you have people at work that want to go out on Friday night and they're all a bunch of whatever, 
Paul doesn't have any problem with you going out with him. He says, because otherwise you'd have to leave the world. Just be a part of the world, but don't participate in the things of the world. But if a brother, here he goes, he'll say it right here. Um, uh, extortioners are dollars since you'd have to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. If the guy isn't a Christian, you're there to be an example to him. Go out and hang around with him, and when it's time for him to do something stupid, say, well, I can't do that. You know, I, I, I have to draw the line. I'm going home. You guys have a good time. And they will see that, and they'll be convicted, hopefully. But if a person says he's a brother and he's doing these things, don't even eat with him. Don't even talk to him as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't say that in the Bible. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. He says, get him out of the congregation because he's going to harm the fellowship. So that's your instruction on that issue. Then we go on. Uh, we talked about, um, uh, where was it? Idols, sexual immorality from things strangled because the blood is not bled from the animal according to the law, but that was an accommodation for the Jews. Okay, there's nothing spoken about this anywhere else. This was an accommodation for the early church where there were Jews and Gentiles together and they would not have understood. And also, this is uh, one commentary I believe that I read, and I could be wrong on this, but strangulation was a way of uh, uh, performing an, uh, uh, idolatry. In other words, you'd strangle an animal for a certain god or something. Okay, and you can't do that. But Paul will talk about that particular issue in Galatians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. All right, so um, where was it? Things that are strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, and then from there they write the letter. I'm not going to read it, but it basically says what we just read. These are the things that we don't want you to do in verse 29, that you abstain from things. Uh, let me go back. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. They never say that if you do these things, you're going to lose your salvation. They just simply say, if you do these things, you'll do well. One, you'll be doing well for your Jewish brethren who see you doing these things. And two, you will be doing well for your own health, okay, your own relationship with the Lord. You're not to do these things. We're not given license to sin. But these are the things that are being discussed by Paul right now in the book of Galatians. And he's saying, why would you put this yoke back on you that they just got rid of and they even acknowledge that it's a yoke and they couldn't bear it, their fathers couldn't bear it. Why would you have the, the Gentiles have to do what you people can't even do yourself? Okay, so that's where we are. Um, let me get my comments back. Where are they? Oh, here they are. All right, so um, do, 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 do. Yeah, group following a bunch of heretics. Okay, uh, where was I? Um, we're still in 418, is that correct? Yes. Okay, the Judaizers want them to fall under the law of Moses. 
They want them in bondage and they want to control their very lives. Paul wants them to be free in Christ, held captive by his grace and filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. To him, it doesn't matter who leads them down that second path as long as it is the correct path. Life application. Never underestimate the love of a pastor for those he teaches. His zeal towards their souls may seem as if he is overly zealous of protecting them, but it's better to be in that position than to be led down apostasy avenue by those who would steal them away into bondage. Be patient with your pastor if he is exuberant. Once again, I wrote this long before I was a pastor, I'm sure. I'm just, I, this is something that I wrote, and even now that I'm in a church and I'm preaching in a church, it still is true, okay? So don't think that I wrote this because I want you to feel this way towards me. It's just something I wrote years ago, okay? Uh, be patient with your pastor if he is exuberant about your doctrine. Understand that if he is sound in his theology, he is looking out for your best interest, okay? Verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth, so Christ is formed in you. Okay, here he says, my little children. You say dear, I say little. All right, uh, 4.19. In the previous verse, Paul said, it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. As noted, the word zealous was in the passive voice. The Galatians allowed themselves to be the object of the zeal of others, but in the case of the Judaizers, it was not a good thing. Imagine once again, go back in your mind, here come the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the door and you wanna be, you know, you wanna be receptive to them. You wanna be, okay, let's talk about this. And you wanna be accommodating of them. One, the Bible says, do not do that. Don't even welcome them to your house lest you share in their wicked work, okay? But secondly, if you're not willing to stand up for your doctrine or if you don't know your doctrine, the only person you're hurting is yourself. You're also hurting them, but uh, because they're not going to learn the right way. But keep that in mind. All right. Uh, it was uh, in the passive voice. Galatians allowed themselves to be the object of the zeal of others. You know, and when when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and they knock on the door, and you think, "Wow, I'm going to have friends today. I'm going to have people that I get to associate with and talk with, and you get to know them. And they become your friends." and you know, you're the object of their affection. Why? Because they want to teach you something that is heretical and they want to have control over you. They're in bondage. They figure might as well get everybody else into the same bondage we're in and we'll all have a happy bondage party. Okay. That's not the way to handle things. All right. Now, Paul was in need of reworking everything he had already accomplished for the Galatians. He was directing his zeal for the gospel to them all over again. In order to show them, meaning the Galatians, that this is of the highest importance to him, he begins this verse with techna mu. So dear children is, or, yeah, my dear children is wrong. It's my little children. Um, uh, my little children, techna mu. Um, this is the only time he uses this term in his writings. Um, it's the word technia, which John uses quite often in his epistles. He says, my, my little children or my dear children, whatever, my, my little children. Uh, it means a diminutive child, okay? Mu is simply possessive, my, all right? So uh, this is the only time he uses this term in his writings, but, oh, here it is, but it is something John wrote several times. It indicates the dearest of affections, as is speaking to one's own little children. Certainly, this is how Paul viewed the Galatians as he had begotten them in the gospel. 
just as he had the Corinthians, which he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, take you there just so you can see, he certainly felt exactly the same way about uh, uh, the Galatians as he did with them. I do not write these things to shame you. This is 1 Corinthians 4. Um, but as my beloved children, I warned you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So he was the one that initially led these people to Christ, just as he was the one that initially led the Galatians to Christ. People had come in and trained him. He had no problem with that as long as they were training them properly. But the problem with the Corinthians was that they were having a starstruck party. And if you remember at the beginning of that, it's I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow uh, you know Peter. And then some of them would even say, well, I follow Jesus. But it was kind of a negative way that they were doing it, okay? And so uh, the, uh, the point of the Corinthians was that they had divided their fellowship. Here, they have united the fellowship, but under the wrong type of teaching. So you got a completely different dynamic in the Galatians, and Paul is horrified by what he's seeing in them. Okay, so... Uh, Paul viewed them as his own little children. He was their father in the faith. Now he was in the process of labor for them once again. He was forced to expend his energies in re redirecting their wayward doctrine. And yet he acknowledged in the previous chapter that they had already received the Spirit and were baptized into Christ. So there's no question that they're saved believers. Whatever happens to them is going to happen to them, and they will stand before the Lord saved as the day they were saved, and they will lose rewards for what has happened. But they will also stand there without the people that came after them because those people will never be saved. If you brought your children into a fellowship where they observe the law of Moses, those children are never going to be saved. I want you to know that right now. This is the consequences of following bad doctrine. You may be saved, but a heresy will keep the, ne keep the next person from being saved. That's the problem with heresies. Bad doctrine does not do that. Bad doctrine just leaves people wandering, you know, kind of on a sea. They're tossed around, and, but they're saved, and the next people will be saved, but they'll just have very poor doctrine in, in, at the same time. But a heresy is different. It keeps people from salvation, okay? So, um, where is it? Uh, yeah, he was in labor for them again. He acknowledged in the previous chapter that they had already received the Spirit, Therefore, his words are speaking of the birth of understanding and obedience to the gospel of grace, and this is evident by the words, until Christ is formed in you. Okay, you can be saved and not have Christ formed in you at all. If somebody comes and uh, gives you the gospel, you're out in the jungle of Papua New Guinea, and you happen to speak Papua New Guineese, and you teach, tell somebody about uh, Jesus, and he's saved, okay, he's never going to lose that salvation. But if that's the only contact he ever has with a person on the doctrine of Christ, he'll never know anymore. Christ is not formed in him in any way, shape, or form. He's going to go back to whatever he does with his life, and he's going to say, I was saved by a man, but that's all I know. And so he's going to keep living his life exactly as he has always lived it. He has no doctrine. That's not his fault. That just means that he didn't. And this happens all the time. People get saved. They hear a message maybe flying on an airplane then they realize, I need Jesus, and they accept Jesus right then and there. That person is saved. But after that, they never go to church again, right? Mm -hmm. Christ is never going to be formed in them, okay? Their families never know they were saved, or maybe they know, ah, he says he got saved by Jesus. They have no idea what it means, and he never talks to him about it. He doesn't get any doctrine, doesn't pick up a Bible. doesn't mean he's not saved. 
It just means that Christ isn't formed in him. All right. I wish people would get that. You know, you get these people that, that they make these posts on Facebook and they send you angry emails saying that if you're doing this or you're doing that, you can't be saved. Well, I don't remember seeing that in the gospel anywhere. I remember seeing the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 and it says, this is the gospel. And then in Romans 10, this is how you appropriate that gospel. And that's it. And Jesus says in uh, John, uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, every other pet peeve that you have, just leave it behind. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. Faith in Jesus Christ is the gospel. That is it. People want to add every little pet peeve that they have into their own lives. They want to add in, yeah, I won't get into it. I had a disagreement with somebody a couple days ago about why he believes that salvation is an eternal. I just feel bad for people like that. It just it makes no sense that he would pull this little aspect of his life out and he puts it out for the whole world to see and says, see, salvation is an eternal because, and it's a personal reason, has nothing to do with scripture at all. Show me that in scripture. Go ahead and show me a, a verse to defend your stand. It's a personal thing with him, but you know, that's, can't help you there. If you're gonna let your emotions dictate your theology, your theology is always going to be poor. It's always going to be poor. If you let your theology dictate your emotions, you will always be in the right spot with Jesus Christ. You'll always be in joy for Christ. You'll always be praising him. You'll always be talking to him. Even when you're miserable, you will know that you are in right with Jesus Christ. You let your theology dictate your emotions and you will always be in the right spot, okay? Otherwise, your, your doctrine is always going to be poor. It will never, ever grow. It will never, I don't care how much you read the Bible, how much you, you will never grow in your theology if you allow your emotions to dictate what you believe the Bible says. Never do that, okay? So, Christ is formed in you. To make a comparable worldly example, we could look at a child who is from one culture. He is adopted into a family and learns the ways of that family. After a certain amount of time, he goes to school back in the land where he came from. While there, he takes up the same habits that he had when he was young, forgetting the culture and refinement of his adopted home. Upon returning home, the family has to re-educate him on his position within the family and proper conduct in the land of his inheritance. Everybody see that? And it can happen. You know, there was a story, I don't know if it's true, but I don't know why somebody would make this up, is that when the conquistadors had come to Florida, way back like the 1500s or something, one of the guys was left here, here in Florida with the uh, native Indians. Now, in, uh, Indians today are called the Seminoles. I don't know if it was the same tribe or not, but he was left here and they forgot about this guy. They completely forgot and he just, he lived with them. And when they came back to him, he could no longer speak English at all. So he had lost it and I, I can agree you lose languages quicker than you lose anything else. I'm telling you, if you don't keep up with the language, you lose it very quickly. I remember Hidako grew up in Japan, okay? She was in Japan, she was there her whole life. Her mom would call once in a while, and so she kept up with her Japanese, and she'd read in Japanese. But I remember when we went to Japan the first time together, she came after me, and there were some friends, and she wanted to translate, and I could see her struggling with it because she hadn't used it in an active sense in so long. And finally, she just went like this, and she was like, stop, I need to think to reprocess all of these things that I haven't done in so long. And then I, I, after that, I was always very careful to not push too much on her. 
But eventually, she she's in Japan. She's speaking Japanese all the time, and she translated for the U.S. government. She translated for the Japanese government. And translation is different than speaking. Speaking is much different. I'm telling you, when you read in a language or if you speak a language, it doesn't mean that you're you're able to do both at the same time. They're, they're completely different. It's a different dynamic. But you lose languages quickly. And that's the example here is this kid. He goes back to a, a culture that he came from when he was little. He used to do these things. How easy it is to slip back into that. That's what he remembers from when he was young. And when he gets back home, he's forgotten how to live properly in an American society. And so they have to say, can't do that. You need to go back and you know start doing this again. And I, listen, that happens. When I was in the military, there were people that never wanted to go back to the United States. They would volunteer. They would re-up in the overseas. They'd sign up. You know, they'd move from uh, uh, Misawa Air Base. They'd go down to Yokota Air Base, and then they'd go back to Misawa, and then they'd go to Okinawa. They, they never wanted to leave. They would go native. They didn't want anything to do with the American way of life except during their job, okay? Mm-hmm. And so they would go completely native. And I afterward, they would retire and stay in Japan. Well, they're picking up all these things and they just, they forget what it's like even to be in America. And it's not a hard thing to do. So I've seen this. Anyway, um, uh, this child never stopped being the son of his adopted parents. He's over there for whatever reason. He's still their child, okay? But he did lose the understanding of what it means to be a child in that family. This is the case of the Galatians. They had not lost the inheritance, but they had failed to be formed into the image of Christ. Paul's job was now to labor once again in that process. Life application. Pity the poor pastor who loves his flock so much that he agonizes over those who walk away from the congregation and get swept up into crummy doctrine. I was thinking of this just yesterday. I'll finish the life application in a minute. I was thinking of this just, it might have been this morning. I was working really hard today after the hurricane. I had to cut up a tree that fell over. I had to take care of three or four properties. I had to take care of our property. I mean, wow, I've been working since early this morning, very physically hard. And so it might have been this morning. I don't want to lie. I think it was yesterday, though. I was thinking about leaving Grace Baptist Church. When Grace Baptist went south, remember, everybody bailed out. A few people stayed, but almost everybody bailed out of Grace Baptist. And that's where I was ordained at. It was a big church. And there were a lot of people that we knew. And some of them, no kidding, went from Baptist doctrine. They became Pentecostals. Yeah, I I mean, you know who I'm talking about. I've flipped out Pentecostals, okay? And then some of them went from good, sound, dispensational teaching Calvinism. You know who I'm talking about there, too, don't you? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I won't say it, but I, I will say it, it's somebody that never shuts up. I'll say oh, that. Okay. Yeah. No anyway. Idea. Yeah. So, I mean, you get people that they they are have Christ formed in them. They understand the teaching of a particular doctrine, which is correct. And then they go to another church and they end up converting into something that is completely, completely contrary to what they knew before. Why that happens, I don't know. But especially going from a Baptist church that had very good doctrine, okay, might not have had the best teachers at times, but it had very good doctrine. Going to Pentecostalism, I, I cannot understand that. They don't open the Bible. They, I, the church, I, I assure you, where this guy went, it, it's not a church where they pursue the Word of God. Whereas at Grace Baptist, the Word was always open. It was always open. So I, 
I don't get it. But anyway, that's what I was thinking about today. Pity the poor pastor who loves his flock so much that he agonizes over those who walk away from the congregation and get swept up into crummy doctrine. I think about those guys all the time. Whenever I start thinking about doctrine and how easy it is to walk away from sound doctrine, they come right to my mind. Here they are going to churches that are doing literally crazy things. And I think, how can that happen? How could they have allowed their guard to be so low that they would just be swept up into that? I don't know. But the pastor or even the friend that sees that happen, it bothers you. It'll bother me for the rest of my life that that happened. If anything can be done about it, he will labor intensively to restore them to that which is proper. If nothing can be done for them, he will carry the memory of what happened and spend his years rethinking what he could have done differently. I, I'm telling you, this is, this right here is the word of God. This is our marching orders. This is where we get all of our instruction. This is where we get all of our proper theology. It's not going to come from anywhere else. You can learn disciplines apart from the Bible, or you can learn how disciplines in the Bible are formed by reading works of great people. Norman Geisler was a great guy that could think about things and form them in a way which you say, I really get that doctrine in the Bible. And he would do it without ever using the Bible. He would say, this is the nature of God. This is how he is. And we know this from simply thinking about it. And then when you read the Bible, you say, I see what he said, because that's the way the Lord is presenting himself here. But he would never show you that in the Bible, but he would show you these things. Okay, but this is it. This book, everything contained in here is it. We don't add anything to it. I, I What was it? Just who was it that asked me this? I don't remember. Somebody sent me an email and said, I've been seeing all these prophecies about Trump and about the elections lately. And what do you think about that? And I said, I do not hold to extra biblical revelation at all. I do not. There is not one prophecy that has been uttered for the past 2000 years that has added anything to this book. Nothing. All right. I don't hold to it. I don't ascribe to that. And I don't believe one of them. If the Lord spoke to somebody, then that's between them and the Lord. And that is it. He's not to go out and say, well, the Lord spoke to me and he wants you to do this or he wants us to do that or Trump is going to win. I'm sorry. I don't believe that. I don't believe that the Lord ever speaks that way. This is what we have and this is all we need. And if we can't get this right by studying it, by loving it, by cherishing it, the problem lies within us, not in this word. This word gives us everything we need to know for proper life doctrine and practice. People will email and they'll say, well, what about um, uh, casting out demons? What about, you know, the church doing this, exercise and exorcisms? I said, I don't believe in it. Why? Because the Bible doesn't tell us to do it. If we were to do that, the Bible would give us that instruction. It does not. Jesus cast out demons. Some of the apostles cast out demons. That's fine. That's a description of what happened. It doesn't prescribe anything for us. And if we were to do that, Paul or Peter would have said, here's what you need to do. You need to follow this, and it does not, and therefore we do not do that, okay? this That's the way the Bible works. If the Bible does not address an issue for you to do, then don't do it. Leave it alone, okay? Okay, now, I'm not, I, you can tell I'm getting animated over this, but doctrine really actually matters. It's important to have proper doctrine, and when you get away from the Bible, you can get into any crazy thing. So please don't go into crazy things. Um, uh, 420. We're in 420. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Okay. I would like to be present with you now and change my tone for I have 
doubts about you. Completely different thought, but we'll see uh, uh, what the analysis says. <clears throat> the uh, perplexed means I'm confused about you. Doubts means that I'm just questioning you. So it's, it's a different thought. Uh, the words of the previous verse help to explain what Paul is relaying here. Taken together, they say, my little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. He is addressing the Galatians as his own precious children, struggling with the notion that they had departed from the sound presentation and reception of Christ, which occurred at their time of infancy. As mere babes, they responded to the gospel and were adopted into the family of God. They didn't have any doctrine at that point. Paul hadn't come in and given them all kinds of sound theology. He had simply said, Christ died for your sins. He explained the gospel and they received it. They are babes in Christ. Now, despite that exalted status, they needed to have the lessons of that infancy taught to them once again. Where is that going to come from? Is it going to come from somebody that came to you with an agenda? Or is it going to come from somebody that cared about you enough to tell you about Christ in the first place? Okay, at least check with Paul. Even, even if you want to follow what these people say for whatever reason, at least check with Paul first. Because that's what, you know, tell you what happened on Monday. What day is it? Thursday, three days ago. I was typing, let me see if I can find the uh, verse. Check with someone. This just came to mind because of the word check with someone. Let me take you to Deuteronomy 11. I'm sure it's Deuteronomy 11, verse 2. All right, I'm sure that's it. I'm going to start with verse 1. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charges, statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Okay, I'm just going to take you to the first five or six words. Know today that I do not speak with your children. Okay, the words I do speak, in other words, they're inserted. It says, know today that not with your children. I did my analysis on it, probably took me 45 or 50 minutes on those words. And at the end of the day, I had sent Sergio an email and I said, Sergio, are you in? And Sergio wasn't in. He was driving around the north of Israel, okay? And I went on my finder and I followed him. He's in Israel, uh, up there. Then he's driving. And then he gets down to, I see he stopped at his dad's house. I'm like, I wonder if he's going to check his messages because I'm waiting, okay? And then he gets back in his car and he goes to Yossi's house. And I'm like, and he didn't check his message. And then he went to some other place, some guy's house, okay? So I don't know who this is, but he's there. Finally, he gets home, and he had a leak in his wall. I didn't know this. He gets home, and I'm like, why aren't you answering me? You know, did I did it make you mad yesterday? What's up? You know, he had a leak in his wall. The whole house was flooded. And so finally, he picks up his phone. He says, I'm sorry, we, we've had this problem, and we were gone. And I said, I know. I followed you. I, I know everywhere you were. I've been spying on you. And, I, and then he showed me the photos, and we finally talked, and we spent... I'd already spent probably 45 minutes on those, we'll say they're eight words. We spent another hour and a half, Sergio and me and Rhoda, going over those words. Because I don't want to tell you something that's incorrect. Out of all of the verses I did, I think I went through verse 9 or 10 or something, I don't know. But on that one verse, I had a question that I needed to get an answer from. And it was something else as well. I actually emailed him about something else. I want you to evaluate something. Is this a correct division of this particular thing? 
And he came back and he said, that cannot be. And I said, I thought that, and that's why I didn't add it into the sermon. I just had it highlighted, and I just hit delete, and that was it, because I would have presented it and said, this is a possibility. It wasn't a possibility. But those words there, it's so difficult. Those few words there are so difficult that Sergio wanted to make sure he went back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they have photos of all the dead little pieces of scrolls. Mm -hmm. And this is the second time that this has happened. I've had a question over one word. And Sergio's gone to the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's found the document where it is. He's found the photo. He, you can enlarge it so you can read it. And it takes a while to find it because old Hebrew is very hard to read. I mean, you can eventually see it and you can read it, but you have to find it. And this is the second time the word that I wanted to know about. I've only asked him like this a couple times, and he's only checked the Dead Sea Scrolls twice. And both times, the word is the cutoff word. It's burn away. And so we have no idea. And so, yeah, imagine, and that's happened twice. Okay, so I, I, I can only give you my best analysis of that when we get to that in uh, nine weeks from now. Okay, but I want you to know that it's that important to inquire. If you're not sure about something, if two words make a difference to me that I'm going to present to people, you and people online, and I'm going to spend almost two and a half hours looking at two words for your benefit, then you need to make sure that you check when you decide I'm gonna change this church or I'm gonna go, you know, I'm, I, I'm gonna accept Calvinist doctrine or something. You need to check, you need to inquire and at least have the courtesy to tell the person that has been instructing you, you know, I'm having questions about this and I don't think you're right and here's why and then talk about it, okay? That, that, that's how important this is to me that I would spend, it was, she knows, she came home and she's like, I said, I just, I, I didn't feed the dogs. I'm supposed to feed them at four o'clock and they know that, they let you know. It was 5.15 and the dogs are sitting there going, ah, ah, ah. and I'm like, I, I, I want to get this done. And until finally we came up with our resolutions, what we're going to present, we didn't do it. And so by the time she got home, the dogs had just been fed. And usually she's home and they've been fed and they're laying around all fat and happy and it wasn't that way. So, um, I, but it's it's important. That's the point that, that it, I'm making to you is that the word of God is important. Even if it's just one word that you may have misunderstood, you want to make sure that you present it properly. Okay. And I'm so thankful to have Sergio and Rhoda who can sit down and analyze these things with me. Okay. And it's old Hebrew. So it's hard for them too. It's not just like, oh, this is what it says. It's old Hebrew and it has different rules. Just like if you look at old English, you read the King James version, the rules are different. And what they say sometimes doesn't make any sense to us. They have different words. They have different, you know, meanings to those words. Uh, you know, in my house are many mansions. What does that mean? Because the word mansions in the Greek doesn't mean the same thing that it means today. So they don't even say mansions anymore. Or some do just to carry on the tradition because it's such a familiar verse. But the word doesn't mean a big mansion. Okay, it's a room. It comes from a Latin word, I think, maison or something. All right, and so it has a different word. So it's hard for Sergio and Rhoda as well, and it took a lot of effort, and we, anyway. Um, now, where was I? Um, uh, inquire, inquire, where was I? No, I used the word inquire. Um, yeah, okay, let me see here. All right, I'm just gonna read the paragraph again because I can't find it. He's addressing the Galatians as his own precious children. He's struggling with the notion that they had departed from sound presentation and reception of Christ, which occurred at their time of infancy. As mere babes, they responded to the gospel and were adopted into the family of God. Despite that exalted status, they needed to have the lesson of that infancy taught to them once again. The letter has been written because of this sad state, but a letter is a one-way transmission of thought. 
without actually being present, he would have no idea if his words were accepted or not. Instead of writing, he says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. By speaking to them and looking into their eyes, he could gauge if his words were having any effect. By hearing their questions and responses to his words, they could engage in calm dialogue as a father with his children. However, without such interaction, his tone needed to be direct and it needed to be forceful. His letter contains words of doctrine and instruction, and there could be no room for a soft tone. And those same words carry the same sound doctrine and instruction down to us today. Paul's words may sound like he's, he's angry at him. Well, he was angry. It may sound that he's upset. He was upset. It may sound that he's hurt. He was hurt. All of these things are conveyed right in this letter. He's appalled at what's going on, and we get the same tone of voice that was given to the Galatians, and they were probably, what is this guy all bent out of shape for? It's because he actually cared about them, and he cared about the word that he had given them and the importance of holding fast to it, all right? By, by speaking to them and looking in their eyes, he could gauge that, all right? By hearing their questions and his responses to his words, they could engage in calm dialogue as a father with his children, okay? Uh, yeah, his letter, I already read this, I'm sorry, his letter contains words of doctrine and instruction, and there could be no room for a soft tone. And those same words carry the same sound doctrine and instruction down to us today. They do not waffle, they are not ambiguous. The law is set aside through the work of Jesus Christ. It is set aside. Any person who comes along and teaches that some or all of the law must be followed is to be rejected outright as a heretic. That's all there is to it. I, know, I get people constantly. I get, I get them from Australia. I get them from uh, you know England. I get them here in the U.S. People will email me and they'll say, my family is caught up in the Hebrew Roots movement. And I would go up to the pastor of that church and I'd say, you are a heretic and you need to stop teaching this and I want my son to leave this church. But you've got him in bondage. That's what you need to do with these people because they are heretics and they're leading people astray. It's, it's appalling what they're doing. So they, I'll read it again. They don't waffle. They're not ambiguous. The law is set aside through the work of Christ and any person who comes along and teaches that some or all of the law of Moses must be followed is to be rejected outright as a heretic. Without knowing if his words were getting through, he finishes with, for I have doubts about you. Were the Galatians paying heed? Had they gone too far in the false teachings of the Judaizers to be rescued? He didn't know. Because of this, the doubts about them swirled around in his mind. Now, having told them this, he will go back to a direct and precise discourse concerning the law. He will use metaphors in this discourse, but they are metaphors which are clearly evident and easily seen. It's a wonderful part of scripture. I will say this right now. I said a couple things about uh, Paul not caring about the other teachers as long as they're teaching sound doctrine, okay? And, but he cares if they're teaching wrong doctrine. And I'm not just saying that to tickle yours because twice I've left this church, actually three times. One time with Sergio, who I trust implicitly, okay? Twice I have left this church and I have not asked him what he's going to preach on. I've not asked, you know, what are you going to pass on to these people because I know what Will Groban is going to be, preach. And when he was here, I had no problem with that. There was not a question. I didn't say, you need to do this at this time. He asked, what is the, the schedule? And I say, I always try to start at 10 o'clock because there's people that are streaming online. 
I said, I always try to get done by this time so that we can have a break and then the people online can watch a video or whatever Sergio does for them. And then after that, we come back in and we have the sermon at this time. We try to finish by this time. I try to keep it that way, but I did not tell him he could have done. And he told me he ended really early, yeah. apparently. Yeah. So it doesn't bother me at all. I trust Will Groban's doctrine implicitly and more Sergio. And I know that because I'm the one that trained Sergio. Okay. So I know that Sergio thinks the way I do. And at times when Sergio's had a problem with me, we've always sat down and we've talked it through. Okay. But Will Groban, I have no problem with that. And so I wanted to qualify that because I'm talking about things in here. And I, I want you to know that what I'm saying in my commentary is true in reality as well. Now, if we have somebody else fill in for me someday, I'm going to have to know what they're teaching on because I don't know anybody else that's a preacher that can come and be available if I need to go somewhere. But with Will Groban, there was never a question. What are, And the sermons were fine, weren't they? They were fine. I went back and I watched them later. He used his extra time well because he spoke with Pat in the episode. Oh, right? see? Yeah. For probably a half hour because I was Good. halfway home and Sergio said, you got to ask him, what should I name this when I put it on? Oh. Like, so I said, well. He's probably gone. So like, yeah, and I, I zipped back and there he was. Still here? Wow, uh, good deal. Good deal. Out. All right, life application on this particular uh, verse. And we got, we're not going to be able to get another one. Um, Paul's concern for the Galatians has been seen 10,000. Let me see. Before I say that, uh, you, maybe we can. We'll try to get 421. I know. Did you already circle it? That's okay. Okay. Um, Paul's concern for the Galatians has been seen 10,000 times since in faithful pastors and preachers who have watched those of his flock stray away from sound doctrine. It is a heartbreaking thing to have the meticulous effort of Bible studies and carefully prepared sermons get thrown out get thrown away over a nutty fad or a crazy notion concerning Christianity. If your pastor holds fast to the word of God, be grateful for that and follow his example. One cannot know God properly without knowing Jesus Christ, and one cannot know Jesus without knowing the Bible. It is impossible. Stand fast on this precious gift and honor the pastor who holds it in high esteem. Once again, I wasn't preaching at the time I did this, I'm sure, or if I was, I was out on the beach and that hardly counted because everybody at the beach had their own church they went to. So uh, anyway, I don't remember when I typed this, and so I don't want to lie about that. But I, if if I was preaching at all, it was out on the beach, and it was just something we did in the afternoons. Okay, we've got uh, – Can we? Get, yeah, go ahead, 421. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, not aware of what the law says? Okay, this one says, do you not hear the law? It's like the law is speaking, all right? Paul now breaks into a completely new line of thought without any sort of introduction. He has shown his exasperation at what had transpired between the false Judaizers and the believers in Galatia. Now, in order to get them to understand exactly where followers of the law stand in relation to believers in Christ, he will introduce an allegorical interpretation of life under the law in contrast to life in Christ. In order to call their attention to what is coming, he cries out with his pen, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. The believers who had been duped into the lies of the false teachers concerning adherence to the law of Moses are who he was referring to. They had gone from the natural path of trusting in the work of Christ, in the fulfillment of the law, to a desire to be under the law. Most likely they were observing certain days according to the law. They were regulating their diet according to the law, and they were contemplating being circumcised according to the law. However, Paul, 
had some instruction for them coming directly from the law, which they had not thought through. And so he says, do you not hear the law? His thoughts will be taken directly from the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. In English, we say the Pentateuch, all right? And they will enlighten the Galatians to a spiritual truth contained within the law itself. During this instruction, he will then cite a later prophet who lived under the law, Isaiah, in order to properly interpret the spiritual message found in the law. In following this pattern, Paul will show the supremacy of the new covenant in Christ's blood. He will further show what the consequences of adhering to the law after the coming of Christ will result in. Life application, yes, we did it. When reading the Bible, Scripture should interpret Scripture. Paul shows us this many times in his writings. However, the context must be maintained or a false sense of what Scripture instructs may result. Be careful to always look at the context of the passages. Above all, be sure to evaluate everything in Scripture from the lens of Jesus Christ. He is the subject of all Scripture. Therefore, evaluating the Old Testament through what he has done will allow us to properly see the meaning of those often difficult to interpret passages. And you wonder why we've been in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses for the past, what, nine years or whatever? Mm -hmm. It's because it's important. Without understanding those things, we can't fully understand what Paul is speaking about in the New. Because when he says, Scripture says, or it is written, it comes right out of the Old Testament. And usually it comes out of the law or the prophets. It might come out of Isaiah or Jeremiah. But for the most part, they are citing the law of Moses. I'm reading Jeremiah right now in my uh, evening evening reading, and um, he, he's always going back to the law. He's always going back to it. So you have to know the Bible as a whole, and you have to take these stories of the, especially Genesis and Exodus, a couple in Numbers, and there's one or two in Deuteronomy, more than one or two, but there's several in Deuteronomy that are given as pictures of things. And if you understand the typology, then you can understand Christ. All right, that's why these things are given to us. Anyway, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful, precious word which you have given us. We thank you for uh, just all the glory and majesty which is revealed in the Bible. And we also, I certainly personally thank you for the difficult passages in the Bible because they challenge us and they make us want to know uh, what, is, uh, what is being said and to stretch our minds a little bit, even if they hurt at the end of the day on sermon typing day. It is a wonderful thing to do and it's it's. Uh, challenge to pursue you, but it is worth every bit of it. How wonderful it is. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the uh, chance to uh, be in this class and to share in it. Then we also pray for those who we mentioned at the beginning of the class or anybody else that's having difficulties right now, that you would be with them and help them through their trials. We pray this, that you'll be glorified, Lord, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, break. All right, there we go. Okay, everybody, have a wonderful weekend. Hope to see you here Sunday morning. What is it, 10 o'clock? We'll be here. Hope you're here too. We love you. Bye-bye. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just churches either. I, I, when I say that, I mean churches devoted to it. I mean churches that are regular that have adopted it into there in part or in whole. So it's not like it's just a movement over here. 
it's getting into all kinds of churches. It's getting everywhere. It's just, it's, it's appalling. It's literally appalling how much this has expanded. And it's because